please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. The last two weeks I have begun by reading Exodus 20 verses 1 to 17 uh, and reading the Ten Commandments given there at Sinai. But this morning we're going to be talking about the threefold use of the law. And so I'll be reading for 1 Timothy chapter 1. You might say, well, you're not reading the Ten Commandments today. Actually, I will be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I hope to make that plain in a moment. Follow along as I read the Apostle Paul's first letter to Timothy, beginning in verse 1 through verse 11. Hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, and immoral men and homosexuals, and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Well, last week I taught on the threefold division of the law, and now today I'm going to begin preaching on the threefold use of the law. Now, don't confuse the two, the threefold division of the law and the threefold use of the law. When we speak of the threefold division of the law of God in the Old Testament, we're referring to, as I talked about last week, the distinction between ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law. Ceremonial law, some laws pertaining to the worship of God in the tabernacle and the temple. These laws pertaining to sacrifices to priests. These were we call ceremonial law. Civil law, those laws pertaining to the law courts. That is, they were judicial laws for the governing of Israel as a nation. We call those laws civil laws. But then there is moral law. Those are laws from God which are inherently moral in nature. There are laws that, that didn't begin at Sinai in the, where the Ten Commandments were gave on two tablet, given on two tablets of stone. No, the moral law 
existed prior to Sinai, before it was codified there and given on those two tablets. These laws, which we call moral law, are tied to the character of God and are binding upon all people of all times in every place. And so we saw last week that the ceremonial and civil laws were temporary. Those laws were for a particular time, a particular purpose in redemptive history under a particular covenant. However, the moral law of God is perpetual and permanent. Uh, last time I gave you three important words to remember in regard to the moral law of God. Those words were timeless, universal, and unchanging. Timeless. The moral law of God is timeless. It was before Sinai. It was from the beginning. It abides forever. It's perpetual. It's universal. The moral law of God was not just for Israel, but for all people. And it's unchanging. It's immutable. For it comes from the very holy character of God, which is unchanging and immutable. Therefore, the moral law of God is perpetually binding upon all people in all places and all times. So that is the threefold division of the law of God, ceremonial, civil, and moral. The first two being temporary and now abrogated. And the last, the moral law of God being perpetual. So now we turn to the threefold use of the law of God. When we speak of the threefold use of the law, we are speaking specifically about the use of the moral law of God. How is the moral law of God to be used? Is the moral law of God good? Is it of any use? And if it is of use, then what is the use of the moral law of God? Are there wrong uses of the moral law of God? What are lawful and unlawful uses? Proper and improper uses of the moral law of God? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, if you'll look there, the Apostle Paul said, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So the Apostle Paul here says, we know. Here's something that believers should know. And there should not be any argument about it. Here's what we know. The law is good. Now here, as he will then expound upon what type of law he's talking about, I think it's clear he's talking about the moral law of God in particular. The moral law of God is good. However, there are those who take what is good and misuse it. And therefore, the Apostle Paul says, if one uses it lawfully, that is, if one uses it correctly. So the law of God is good if, if one uses it correctly. Something which is good can be used incorrectly. When we use or when used incorrectly in the hands of those who use it. It is used or misused or abused so as to become an instrument of harm, not good. A hammer is good, but you have to use it correctly and for the right things. If a hammer is used to properly drive in a nail, then it is a very good use, one use for which it was created. But if you use a hammer to discipline your child, 
You not only abuse the hammer and use it incorrectly, but you also abuse your child. Great harm is done by that which should be used for good purposes, purposes for which it was created and intended. So this is a misuse of something that is good if it is used correctly. The same is true of the moral law of God. It is good, inherently good, because of the one who gave it. However, a person can misuse the moral law of God, use it in a way contrary to the purpose for which it is useful. In fact, we can say that the moral law of God is of necessity, not only good, it's of necessity. It is necessary for all men, saved and unsaved, regenerate and unregenerate. It is not to be neglected. But neither is it to be misused. For when the law of God is misused, great harm, not good, occurs. So what is, to use the words of verse 8, what is the lawful use of the law? How is the law which is from God and good to be used? And what good end and purpose is it to be used for? Well, let me set a framework by quoting the Westminster Larger Catechism and then explaining this from the Bible. Uh, the questions I've just asked have been asked by many saints who have gone before, who have grappled with these things from Scripture and then have distilled answers to these things in ways that are very helpful. So let me set again the framework by quoting question 94 in the Westminster Larger Catechism. And it asks this, is there any use of the moral law to man since the fall? Here's the answer. Although no man since the fall can attain to righteousness and life by the moral law, that is, what it's saying is no one can attain to salvation by attempts to keep the moral law of God. That would be an unlawful, incorrect use of the law. Although no man can attain to righteousness through the law and be reconciled to God through the law. It says this, yet there is great use thereof as well common to all men as peculiar either to the unregenerate or the regenerate. In other words, there's great use for it for all men, whether you're saved or not, whether you're unregenerate or not. So the next question addresses the common use of the moral law of God for all people, unsaved and saved, unregenerate and regenerate. Question 95, of what use is the moral law of God to all men? And the answer can be distilled into these three phrases, to inform them, to convince them, and to humble them. So here's the full answer to that question, of what use is the moral law of God to all men? The moral law of God is of use to all men to inform them of the holy nature and will of God and of their duty, binding them to walk accordingly. To convince them of their disability to keep it, that is their inability to keep it, and of the sinful pollution of their nature, hearts, and lives, and to humble them in the sense of their sin and misery, and thereby help them to a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and of the perfection of his obedience. Boy, that is a great answer to the question. A great answer to the question. Now, we'll expand on that in a minute. 
But then the question, the next question, addresses the particular use of the moral law to the unregenerate, to the unsaved. Question 96 says, what particular use is there of the moral law to unregenerate men, to the unsaved? Here's the answer. The moral law is of use to unregenerate men to awaken their consciences, to flee, flee from wrath to come and to drive them to Christ. Or upon their continuance in the estate and way of sin to leave them inexcusable and under the curse thereof. So that's the particular use of the law summarized there for the unregenerate. To awaken their consciences that they might flee the wrath to come and drive them to Christ. But if they don't go to Christ, it leaves them unexcusable and under the curse of the law. But then the catechism addresses the special use of the moral law of God to the regenerate, to those who are believers. Question 97, what special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? Here's the answer. Although they that are regenerate and believe in Christ be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, that is, we cannot be saved by our obedience to the law, for we are all breakers. So as thereby they are neither justified nor condemned by the moral law. Yet besides the general use thereof common to them with all men, it is of special use, how? To show them, to show them what? Listen to these words. To show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead, in their place, and for their good and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same, that is the same thankfulness, in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto, that is thereunto the moral law of God, as, here's an important phrase, the rule of their obedience, the standard of their obedience. That is, being bound to Christ by faith in his saving work and out of a heart of love and thankfulness, the moral law then shows believers how they might live to his glory. His commandments become the rule, the standard of their obedience to their Savior and Lord. So the moral law of God is good. It's useful. It has common usefulness for all people, saved and unsaved, but particular usefulness for the unsaved and a special usefulness for the saved. Now, in examining what the scripture says about the moral law of God and its usefulness, historically, we've divided that into three categories. We can describe these three correct or lawful uses of the moral law of God in a number of ways, and it's been put in a number of ways. So putting them into three categories, we could speak of it like this. The moral law of God reveals, restrains, and rules. The moral law of God reveals, restrains, and rules. It reveals. It gives knowledge of something. It makes something known. It reveals what? Well, it reveals God's holy and righteous character. And corresponding to that, it reveals and makes known the sin and sinfulness of humanity. Therefore, it reveals, it makes known our need for a Savior. 
So the law functions to demonstrate that sinners need Christ and they need his saving work. But the law not only reveals the holy character of God, our sin and our sinful condition and our need for a savior, but it also restrains. The law of God restrains sinful hearts. That restraint is because of fear of the consequences and displeasure of the discipline of the Lord if we're believers and of the wrath and eternal judgment of the Lord if we are unbelievers. The threatenings of the moral law restrain sinful people from doing the worst. The moral law keeps them in check. It restrains them. Now that's for another week. We'll expand on that more. So the moral law of God reveals something about the holy character of God correspondingly our sinfulness and therefore our need for a savior. It restrains the wickedness of the human heart through its threatenings, so to speak. But thirdly, it rules. That is, it governs, it guides, it leads, it directs. Rules whom? Guides whom? Leads and directs whom? Well, believers. It is a rule and standard of our obedience to God and to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So it reveals, it restrains, and it rules. It reveals our sinfulness, the holiness of God, our sinfulness, our need of Christ. It restrains the wickedness of men. And for believers, it is our rule of obedience as those who've been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. So the moral law of God is a revelation of a holy God and sinful man. It is a restraint of sin and evil, and it is a rule of righteousness for the sanctification of believers. Now, here are three different words that speak of the same thing. I'm just giving it to you in different ways that you might remember it. The moral law of God convicts, it curbs, and it constrains. It convicts sinners of sin. It curbs sinners from doing their worst. And it constrains the lives of believers to the path of righteousness. Now, so far I've used verbs to describe this threefold use of the moral law of God. It reveals, it restrains, it rules, it convicts, it curbs, it constrains. But let me use now three nouns. This is a common way that you hear people describe the usefulness of the moral law of God. The moral law of God is a mirror, a muzzle, and a map. It's a mirror. Again, it reveals something. When you look in a mirror, it shows you something. It's revelatory. And what it reveals brings about conviction. And it points to Christ. The law of God is like a mirror. It reflects and mirrors the perfect righteousness of God. The law tells us much about who God is. He's holy, holy, holy. And looking into the mirror of the moral law of God, it now exposes our sinfulness. And seeing the righteousness of God in our unrighteousness in the moral law, then the law leads us to the only hope of forgiveness to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a mirror. That's one use of the law. But it's also a muzzle. It's a muzzle. Second use of the law is it restrains evil. The law in and of itself cannot change human hearts. However, 
the holy standard of God's law and the consequences of breaking it serve to restrain people from doing all the sin that enters into their minds and hearts. Now we understand how man's laws with the corresponding punishments for those who commit certain crimes restrains them from doing it. And we see really the consequences of not having consequences to crimes. This is in the news all the time now, right? If, if attorneys do not, uh, I'm, I'm losing the word here, the particular person. Say it again. Prosecutor. Prosecutor, but the attorney general or whatever it may be, we see it in the news all the time. If they're not going to prosecute the crimes and people get more bold in committing the crimes because there's no consequence, therefore there's no restraint. So we know that even human laws restrain wickedness and when they're enforced then it restrains the wickedness of human beings well the moral law of God serves a similar purpose it muzzles us it restrains us in one sense the moral law of God functions in this way for the believer and the unbeliever sometimes we don't sin not out of love for God we should out of love for God, but sometimes we don't sin out of fear of the consequences of that sin. It has a restraining effect upon us. That's the law doing its work. Now again, we should be doing it because we love him. There are consequences to sin and to breaking God's moral law. John Calvin, speaking of the moral law as a muzzle, a restraint of sin in the lives of unbelievers, wrote this, the law, by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment, curbs those who, unless forced, have no regard for rectitude and justice. Such persons are curbed not because their mind is inwardly moved and affected, but because as if a bridle were laid upon them, they refrain their hands from external acts and internally check the depravity which would otherwise petulantly, that's boldly and brashly, burst forth. So this is a good use of the moral law of God. God uses his moral law to restrain the wickedness of human hearts. Again, that's for another week in more detail, but we'll see how important it is that we not forsake the moral law of God as the people of God in proclaiming it not only to believers but to unbelievers. But thirdly, it's not only a mirror and a, a muzzle, but it's also a map. This is the third use of the law that's for believers alone. The moral law is like a map that directs us in the path of righteousness and the path of holiness. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. There, the psalmist is saying, it's, it directs me, it governs my life, it's a map. R.C. Sproul said this, The third purpose of the law is to reveal what is pleasing to God. As born-again children of God, the law enlightens us as to what is pleasing to our Father, whom we seek to serve. The Christian delights in the law of God as God himself delights in it. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, verse 15. So the moral law reveals, restrains, and rules. It 
convicts, it curbs, it constrains believers. But we could say it this way. It's a mirror, it's a muzzle, and it's a map. Now, each of these lawful and proper, even necessary uses of the moral law of God are described in the hymn we've been singing for the last few weeks. So here's the quiz. Here's what we've been singing. The first stanza. Yeah, you can look. I hear your, your hymns. There are your pieces of paper. The first and the second stanzas. The law of God is good and wise and sets his will before our eyes, shows us the way of righteousness and dooms to death when we transgress. Second stanza. Its light of holiness imparts the knowledge of our sinful hearts. That, here's the purpose, we may see our lost estate and seek deliverance ere too late. Look at the fifth stanza. The law is good, but since the fall, its holiness condemns us all. It dooms us for our sin to die and has no power to justify. So here's the first question of the quiz. Which use of the moral law do these three stanzas speak of? Don't, don't necessarily speak out loud in your mind. Mirror, muzzle, or map. Here, the mirror. It gives us knowledge of something. It shows us something of God's holiness in our sin. And it drives us to Christ. It's a mirror that reveals and convicts and points to Christ. Look at the fourth stanza. When men the offered help disdain, that is, they don't hear the gospel. They don't come to Christ. They don't seek the remedy for their sin. They disdain the offered help of God and willfully in sin remain. Its terror in their ear resounds. And keeps their wickedness in bounds. Question two. Which use of the moral law does this stanza speak of? Muzzle. It restrains. It curbs the wickedness of men. Look at the third stanza. To those who help in Christ have found. And would in works of love abound. It shows what deeds are his delight. And should be done as good and right. So which use of the moral law does that refer to? It's a map. It rules believers. It constrains believers. It's a rule of obedience. Constrains our lives joyfully as we love him to walk according to that map that he has given to us of how to glorify him. Then the last stanza refers to what the Westminster Larger Catechism speaks to when it says the moral law of God has this special use in the life of believers. Remember I just read to show them how much they are bound to Christ for fulfilling it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good and thereby, thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness. That's what the sixth stanza says. To Jesus we for refuge flee who from the curse has set us free and humbly worship at his throne saved by grace through faith alone. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, that's just explaining the threefold use of the law, the proper, the lawful use of the law. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. But now, let's focus more particularly on the first use of the moral law. The moral law of God is a mirror. Now, this is going to take me a couple of weeks. We're going to focus on 1 Timothy chapter 1 in our remaining time. Next week, we're going to focus on Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 13. 
The moral law of God is a mirror. This is what we sometimes call the evangelistic use of the moral law of God. Now again, look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now in the context, the Apostle Paul is calling Timothy to forbid men from teaching certain strange doctrines. Go back to verses 3 and 4. You remember there he, he leaves him in Ephesus and he tells him to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, verse 4, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than the furthering, rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. The goal of these men was not the spiritual good of the church. They were boastful and arrogant. They wanted to be teachers of the law. He'll refer to that in a minute. Now, in contrast to these men who were teaching that which was contrary to sound doctrine, Paul says in verse 5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Those who were teaching strange doctrines, heterodoxy, not orthodoxy, had strayed from these things. Verse 6, for some men strain from these things, the things mentioned in verse 5, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. These men were motivated by a desire to be teachers of the law. Yet in reality, they were ignorant of the law of God. Verse 7, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They're, they're bold about their teaching. They, they're arrogant, but they're really ignorant. Now, just to be clear, Paul wants to make sure that Timothy knows that the problem was not with the law of God. They wanted to be teachers of the law. And they're making these confident yet false assertions about the law of God. But he wants Timothy to know the problem is not the law of God. Instead, the problem was with these men who arrogantly and ignorantly wanted to be teachers of the law. And in their arrogance and ignorance, they were misusing the law of God. Therefore, he says in verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So here's a categorical statement. The law is good. Even though men may twist the law of God and use it wrongly and unlawfully, nonetheless, the law of God is good. Now, next week, we'll see the Apostle Paul addresses the same thing in Romans chapter 7. In verse 12 of that chapter, he says, The law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Now, that is not to say that it can't be twisted or misused. Therefore, he says in verse 8, If one uses it lawfully, the law of God must be used lawfully. It is not to be used for one's own pride or in sinful, wrong, and unlawful ways. It is to be used lawfully. Now notice that Paul doesn't call for the abandonment of moral law. Instead, he's calling for the right lawful use of the moral law. It must be used lawfully, that is, properly, correctly. So from this, we understand there is a lawful, right, proper, correct use of the moral law of God and there is an improper, wrong, incorrect, unlawful, and even heretical use of the law of God. In particular, thinking of the first use of the law, it can be used wrongly in evangelism. Now, I think it's important to emphasize one particular unlawful use 
of the moral law of God. This is really the most common improper use of the moral law of God. It's called legalism. Legalism refers to seeking to be justified before God by works of the law, either by keeping the law of God or by keeping man-made codes of ethics, man-made laws, which are usually declared to be the law of God. Legalism could be defined as any attempt to rely on self-effort, works of the law, either to attain justification or to maintain justification before God. The Apostle Paul himself was a legalist before he came to Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, he speaks of those things he once trusted in, his resume, so to speak, that he trusted in to, to make him right before God, to justify him before God. But then he understood that he could not have a righteousness of his own that would stand before a holy God. But he needed a righteousness that came from God on the basis of faith, namely the righteousness of Christ imputed to his account. But the legalist claims a righteousness of his own, derived by doing supposed good works and by keeping the law of God. So legalism claims that some element of self-effort and merit on the part of human beings is necessary for salvation. But this self-righteous legalism ignores the total depravity of man. It ignores man's total inability to make himself right before a holy God. And it ultimately sees God as less holy than he is and man as more holy than he is. And ultimately, legalism denies that faith alone in Jesus Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. So we could simply say that legalism is attempting to be justified before God by one's own works of the law. And therefore, it denies salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. In fact, legalism, therefore, we could say simply this, it denies the gospel. It is an enemy of the gospel of grace. And therefore, the word of God stands in battle array against legalism. Galatians 1 verse 8, the apostle Paul said, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So those who were preaching justification, forgiveness of sin by the works of the law, that's a false gospel. It's no gospel at all. And those who preach such things are to be condemned and accursed. And so the word of God throughout is very clear. Galatians 2, verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. By no flesh, he means it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. No flesh will be justified in that means. You, this is a wrong use of the law. Romans 3, verse 20, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There's that first use of the law. It's a mirror that shows us something 
It shows us our sin, but it cannot justify. It has no power to justify. Christ, indeed, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Romans 10, verse 4. So the moral law of God is not a way to life, eternal life. It is not a way to obtain forgiveness before God. Christ is the end of the law as a way to life for the sinner. Now, we'll talk about it under the third use of the law, but it is a way of life for the justified believer who's come to Christ by faith. That's the third use of the law. It is a map that directs us in paths of righteousness. However, Christ is the end of the law for the purpose of gaining eternal life. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness before a holy God. We cannot be justified by works of the law. So it is unlawful, unbiblical, and against the gospel to teach that anyone can obtain a righteousness that saves from the wrath of God through works of the law. If you're seeking to be justified before God, to assuage the guilt of your sin somehow by trying to do better, keep God's law, it only leads to heaping more wrath upon you. We just sang in the hymn, one speaking of such a thing, indignant justice stood in view. So what did they do? To Sinai's fiery mount I flew, talking about works of the law, trying to do the, the commandments of God to be justified. But justice cried with frowning face, this mountain is no hiding place. So that's a wrong use of the law. But then, speaking to what we call the evangelistic use of the law, the law is a mirror that shows us the holy character of God in the sinfulness of man. Verse 9 says, realizing the fact, knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous person, for there are none, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. The law of God is given for this purpose. After the fall, in order to instruct us as to what is righteous and what is sinful. And as such, the law is meant to expose sin and to condemn guilty sinners who violate the law of God. If a person is righteous, the, law, the moral law of God is not made for him since the so-called righteous person is in complete conformity to the law of God. But yet the Bible says in Romans 3, beginning in verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law of God is made for. The word made there means to be laid down. It's a legal term. It's the idea. It's laid down for sinners that they might see their sin. The law of God instructs concerning what is holy and what is sin and convicts the sinner is guilty. Romans 3 verse 20 again, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That is a good use of the law. See, people don't like that. They say, oh, I don't want to hear about what I've done wrong today. I want to hear about something good. 
No, it is good for the sinner to be reminded of his sin and to come to the mirror of God's moral law and see that he has sin written all over him. The law is a mirror that shows us our sin. You may think something is straight until you place it beside a straight edge and then you see how crooked it is. You may think your face is clean until you look in a mirror. A person might convince himself he's not a sinner until he comes face to face with the holy law of God. Now, where is the moral law of God summarily comprehended? Where is the moral law of God found in summary form? I've been saying in the Ten Commandments. Therefore, we see the Ten Commandments in this passage in verses 8 to 10. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, and immoral men, and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now, the end of verse 9 says, for those who kill fathers or mothers. What commandment in the Ten Commandments does that violate? Well, it violates the Fifth Commandment to honor father and mother. This would be the worst violation to, to literally murder father and mother rather than honor them. Therefore, it's also a violation, of course, you shall not murder, the sixth commandment. You say, well, I would never kill my parents. But we'll see when we get to that commandment, you shall not murder, that it's not just the act of taking the life of a person, but we can do it with our words. There's something called word murder. I remember, and it makes tears come to my eyes today, remember at times as a, a child being angry with my mother and telling her I hated her. Who knows? I don't remember what it was about. But there would be times I would just tell her I hated her because wanting something she wouldn't give to me, I would murder her with my words. So that's a violation of not honoring father and mother. But then he says for murderers, for murders at the end of verse 9. That's the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Then in verse 10, and immoral men and homosexuals, that's the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And kidnappers, literally the Greek word means man-stealing. So that violates the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, and that's one form of it, to kidnap someone, to steal a human being. This is a violation, or this is why slavery is a violation to steal someone, to take them and enslave them. But that's the, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Then it says, and liars and perjurers. That's the ninth commandment, bearing false witness. You see, Paul is saying that the moral law of God is useful, is for not the righteous, but for the unrighteous. And it shows them their sin. And he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Note here that coveting is not mentioned. Is it therefore abrogated? Of course not. Paul will talk specifically, and we'll look at it next week in Romans 7, specifically how the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, is what stabbed him in the heart to show him his sin. 
So you might ask, Pastor Greg, you said that the whole Decalogue is here. What of the first four commandments? Well, look at verse 9. He says the law is for those who are lawless and rebellious. These are general terms. Those who live as if there is no law, they're rebellious, they're insubordinate, they refuse to submit, they're unruly, they're defiant against God. And then we see the lawless and rebellious described in verse 9 as those who break the first table of the moral law of God and written on tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are found in these four words, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane. The word ungodly is a word that means irreverent and godless, without God. And the root of it, and in the verb form, is the word for worship that's used for the worship of God, sabo. And these are those who are without worship. They are godless and without the worship of the true and living God. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. It is a commandment that he alone is God and he alone is to be worshipped. And yet, those described here as ungodly are those who are without the worship of the true and living God. That's a violation of the first commandment. Then the word sinner. The second commandment is found in that one word. This is a word that was used to describe in particular the Gentiles. We see that in Galatians 2, verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. And what characterized the Gentiles? Idolatry. So this word sinner is used for those who were known for their idolatry. And what is the second commandment? You shall not make for yourself an idol. And you shall not worship those idols or serve them. So that word is the second commandment. Then you see the word unholy. That's the third commandment. Unholy, impious. Those who are not worshipers of the true and living God, they're ungodly. And those who replace that worship with the worship of idols, they are sinners. They are here described as unholy, treating God's name as unholy. They take it in vain by their unholy lives. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And as we'll see when we get to the third commandment, those who made, those made in the image of God take his name in vain much more by their unholy lives than by their unholy lips. So that word unholy is a reference to the third commandment. Then the word profane. That's the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Those who did not keep it holy were said to profane the Sabbath. Profane the Sabbath. The verb form of this noun, profane, means to desecrate, to violate. And it is the word that's used in Matthew 12, verse 5, to break or profane the Sabbath. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's used repeatedly. Nehemiah 13, verse 17, Ezekiel 20, verse 13, Isaiah 56, verse 2, Isaiah 56, verse 6, as those who are profaning the Sabbath. Paul is using this word in particular, and he speaks of those who do not keep the fourth commandment. They profane the Sabbath. 
So when people say the fourth commandment is not reiterated or repeated in the New Testament, my first thought is usually, but it doesn't have to be repeated to be morally binding. That's faulty hermeneutics. But my second thought is this, it is found in the New Testament right here in 1 Timothy 1 verse 9 among the other moral laws summarized in the Ten Commandments. And Jesus himself taught on the Sabbath. We'll see that when we get to the fourth commandment. When he said the Sabbath was made for man. Mark 2.27. He didn't say it was made for Israel. He said it was made for man. But that's for another week. But I just want you to see that the Ten Commandments are here. Except for the tenth. You shall not covet. But we see the first table and the second table of the law. So you see, these for whom the law of God is laid down, they are lawless and rebellious. They're ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane. First table of the law. They are godless, idolatrous, irreverent, without regard for the holiness of God. And these words rightly describe those who have disregard for God, which the first four commandments of the Decalogue address. The lawless, rebellious, ungodly, sinful, unholy, and profane do not worship the true and living God, but are idolatrous. They worship idols of their own making. They have no regard for the holiness of God. They do not hallow his name, and they profane his day. And they not only violate the commands of God that have to do with their relationship to him, but they violate those commands that have to do with those relationships to others. They are murderers. They kill father and mother, murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. And then Paul says, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So when the Apostle Paul wants to summarize lawlessness and rebellion against God, he refers to the summary of the moral law of God, namely the Ten Commandments. So just continue to add this to your understanding of those who've gone before us. And when I preach on and say the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments are the moral law summarily comprehended. But here Paul is saying this is the lawful use of the moral law. It's a mirror revealing the holiness of God, the utter sinfulness of human beings. The law convicts as guilty. It condemns as those who deserve eternal condemnation. Romans 3.19, we know that whatever the law says, it speak to those, speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be closed and all the world become accountable to God. This is the evangelistic use of the law of God. So at the end of verse 10, he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, verse 11, according to to the glorious gospel, the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. So here we see that this ties the lawful use of the law to the gospel. The law of God should be taught, why? To instruct in God's holy standard, to convict as guilty, to as, condemn as worthy of judgment, then to point to the Savior, to lead people to the gospel. This is the evangelistic, gospel-centered use of the law. The law points us to 
grace which is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Augustine wrote this, The law orders, that is, it commands, that we, after attempting to do what is ordered, and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. Now, next week, we'll see further how the law of God is to be used as a mirror to show us our sin, our need of a Savior. And I'll take a little more time to apply this to how important this is for evangelism and even parenting. We'll, we'll get into some of those nuts and bolts next week. But let me conclude today by making application to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Law and gospel. Law and grace are not enemies. Sinners attempt to put them at odds with each other, but they are not. They attempt to put them at odds with one another by seeking to be justified before God by works of the law rather than by faith in the Lord Jesus. But when we rightly understand this lawful use of the moral law of God, then we see that law and grace the moral law and the grace of Christ are in complete harmony. The second London Baptist Confession of 1689, chapter 19, entitled Of the Law of God, paragraph 7. Having spoken of the right use of the moral law, it states this. Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel but, listen to these words, do sweetly comply with it. I love the way that's phrased. These uses of the law of God do sweetly comply with the gospel of grace. Law and gospel are not contrary, but do sweetly comply. The law of God is a friend of the gospel of grace in that it brings people to see their need of Christ. We're lawbreakers. We've broken the law of God. But there is one who's holy. There's one who's righteous, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the world to save lawbreakers, sinners. You do know you're a sinner, don't you? You deserve the condemnation and wrath of God. But here's the good news. Broken and convicted by the law. There's a Savior who died in the place of sinners. Jesus died a substitutionary atonement, bearing the wrath that sinners deserve. So stop ignoring your guilt. Stop ignoring your sin. Acknowledge your sin. Confess your sin. And cease from any thought that you can be good enough to reconcile you to God, yourself to God. You can't. Don't have a debit card theology. I have a certain allotment of sins on my debit card that I can commit without going to hell. Nothing could be further from the truth. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. James 2 verse 10. Have you ever become angry? You're guilty. If you ever lusted, you're guilty. If you ever lied, you're guilty. If you ever stolen something, you're guilty. 
Do you live to the glory of God in every motive and everything you do and give him the worship that is due to him alone? No, guilty. So stop trying to be justified before God based on your supposed goodness and efforts. There's none righteous, not even one. Instead, let this law of God do its work to so hold you accountable and shut you up as guilty before God that you see, I need the help of another. And his name is Jesus. He kept the law of God fully and completely. And he bore the wrath that sinners deserve. Trust in him alone. For God the Father made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. Let's pray together. Father, I pray now for some in our midst who've looked into the mirror of God's law. They know they're guilty, but instead of that leading them to Christ. They run from the mirror. They want to break the mirror. They're angry at the mirror. They hate the mirror. But your law is good. And it's doing its good work in showing sin and sinfulness and guilt. Father, I pray for those who are guilty before you today who have not come to Christ that even now they might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And see the beauty of the one who is only righteous and holy, who came into the world to fulfill the law, to be our righteousness. And Father, I pray for us who are believers. This might cause us to have hearts full of thankfulness. That Lord, now as those who have been justified, not by works of the law, but through faith in Christ, that Lord, we might now serve you and love you and worship you. Lord, out of hearts of gratefulness and love. Lord, we love you. Thank you for what Christ has done for us. He is our only hope. And he is our righteousness. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.